6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapter 30 through chapter 31, verse 30. Sixty-six books written by 40 authors over thousands of years that are designed word by word, letter by letter, space by space, supernaturally, for your learning and mine. Very interesting. And I think these hints by the Holy Spirit are to give us an awe. I was going to say respect, but I don't think it's a strong enough term. An awe for the design that lies behind these words. We got down to... um, Back to Jeremiah 31, we haven't even got to the juicy part yet. If I seem a little in a hurry and skipping some things, it's because I want to get to the main event, and we're not there yet, so we'll keep slugging away here. I think we got down here to verse 18. The Lord continues, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised like a bullock, unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn me back, and I shall be restored, for thou art the Lord my God." Surely after I was turned away, I repented, and after I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even confounded, because I did not hear, bear the approach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear, is, is Ephraim my dear son? You get the Jewishness in here? I'm always amused by that. You see it several places in the Scripture, but you can almost hear. You almost have to do it. I can't do it well. To do it in a Jewish dialect, you know. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spoke against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my heart is troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Set thee up waymarks, make thee high heaps. Set thine heart toward the highway, even the way which thou wentest. Turn again, O virgin of Israel, turn again to these thy cities. Now we have a verse that's got everybody, all kinds of scholars, going in more different directions because the obvious ways may not be correct. Verse 22, and you can almost mark this with a question mark, because good, good, intense scholars have trouble with this verse. How long wilt thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter? For the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. Now, this has got nothing to do with woman's lib, okay? Now, there are basically two views. And they each have problems, really serious problems, when you get in behind the language. The early, earlier ancient view was that this was sort of a strange allusion to the virgin birth. And uh, when you get into the language, you got some problems with that, not the least of which the word woman here is the general word for female. There is no definite article. It's a woman, and it's a woman, it's a strange word. It's not necessarily a virgin, it's just a woman in contrast to a man. It's a strange word they use. Okay, the word sabab, which is the surround, or you know, or or uh, what's the term? How's it translated here? Um, uh, the compass is a word uh, that is just the opposite kind of a word you use if you're talking about conception. Though so the people who you know, the classical view is that it is in fact somehow allusion to the virgin birth. 
Some Hebrew scholars say that's really stretching things because they, they dissect all the little nits and nats and say, that's tough. There's a more modern view, still uh, of sound scholarship, but modern view that this actually refers to the woman is Israel and she's going to woo the Lord. And that's sort of backwards. The woman doesn't do the wooing, the man does. And what's implied in the Hebrew is that it's a new thing, it's a reverse, where she will actually woo the Lord. All through the Old Testament, the Lord is wooing Israel. And what's going to happen here is the reversal of that. And there's a modern sense of scholarship that argues that's really the intent of the Hebrew there. However, there are at least four facts that cause you to go back to the traditional view. There is a new thing here, okay, on the earth. The word create implies divine intervention and causing it to happen. The woman is, the word there implies an individual, not a collective noun. And uh, the man here is the same word as in Isaiah 9, 6, which is a word used of God. So this is a, the real inference here is an exegetical problem in the Hebrew that us, uh, that we with our skills, I don't think are smart enough to unravel. They are two views. They're both valid. They're both okay. I don't want to split hairs. I do want you not to glibly assume one or the other here. There are two views. There are others that really don't make sense. Those two are the basic views, and it's a strange passage. Oh, I have a third view. <laughs> now, I have, I have absolutely no scholarship to support my view. If it isn't Israel, for whatever reasons, and if it is the virgin birth, there is a woman in the New Testament, not visible in the Old, that might be alluded to here, the church. And I don't know if that's any good, but I am fascinated that no scholar of all the commentaries looked even suggested that as a possibility, which probably means it's either really wrong or right on target. I have no idea. So with that, I will have you share my abysmal state of ignorance, and we'll move on. Okay. Okay, we got down to verse 23. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, and yet they shall use this speech in the land of Judah and its cities, when I shall bring again their captivity. The Lord bless thee, O habitation of justice and mountain of holiness. Now this probably means use this speech, that is, this, this blessing. But let me tell you something else. We find a prophecy in the book of Zephaniah, and it's not obvious in the English translation in your King James, but in Zephaniah, the passage, well, maybe you should, as long as I brought it up, we better look at it. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. In your English Bible, it says, for then, speaking of the end times, for then I will, I will I turn to the peoples a pure language, and they shall, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him in one consent. In your English, you don't capture the intent of the Hebrew. What Zephaniah is prophesying in chapter 3, verse 9, is that when they're regathered in the land, they will return to pure Hebrew as their language. And you can actually find commentaries written, you know, 100 years or more ago, by competent, knowledgeable biblical scholars who point out that the literal part of that Hebrew can't be true. That's why it's translated pure language in your King James. Why can't it be true? Because never in the history of man has a dead language resurrected to be a living language. There are lots of examples where languages die and are only used scholastically. Latin is a good example. You know, if you're going to be in law or certain professions, you need to learn Latin because of roots and all kinds of reasons. But Latin with the exception of its hermetic use by the Catholics, is not a living language. Hebrew was the same way. From the Babylonian captivity onwards, they did not speak Hebrew. They spoke Chaldean. Why? When Persians, the Persians took over Babylon, they let them go back to the land, and the Greeks took over. Alexander the Great enforced Greek as the international language. If you were a Jew living in an Orthodox household, 
the only Hebrew you learned was like you might learn a catechism. You didn't speak it. You spoke Chaldean. You want to talk about the ghettos in Germany? Hey, that was Yiddish, not Hebrew. Hebrew was a scholar's quaint undertaking. If you were a rabbi or interested in studying the scripture, sure, you learned Hebrew, but you learned Hebrew much the way a Catholic might learn Latin so he can get into the Vulgate, where they're the favorite translation among that group. Now, what's fascinating is the scholars predict you never resurrected dead language. Wrong. Go to Israel today. And that language is a language that Zephaniah could read comfortably, except for some of the new technical terms. You might have trouble with television or, you know, whatever, you know. Yeah, you know, microchips, uh, you know, there's a number of languages he probably had a tough time with. Now, getting back to Jeremiah here, where it said, uh, in verse 23, as yet they shall use this speech in the land of Judah. The, the, the text does not require it, but I personally have no trouble with the Lord inferring a prophecy like Zephaniah's that at that time they will use this speech, what speech? The speech that, that Jeremiah was writing in. The Lord was speaking to him in. By the way, there are some scholars that believe that Hebrew was the original language with Adam. That's a tough thing to prove. <laughs> but uh, uh, I personally uh, would be surprised if it wasn't. Okay. In the land of, the, of Judah and cities, and I shall bring again their captivity, meaning turning around. And and Lord bless thee, O habitation of justice and mountain of holiness. And and they shall dwell in Judah itself and in its in all its cities together, farmers that... And they who go forth with flocks, and I have filled... Now, see, this is, you can't take that allegorically. They are in the land of Judah. And they're raising and, and growing things and so forth. Verse 12, For I have filled full the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. Upon this I awaked and beheld, that, and my sleep was sweet unto me. Verse 26 implies that this vision, this, this, this expression, was in a dream, but a very special kind of dream. Don't let that bother you. He's in good company. Jacob had a dream. Joseph in Egypt had dreams. Pharaoh in Egypt had dreams. Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon had dreams. That's what led to Daniel chapter 2. God does speak in dreams. I wouldn't get all carried away if you have some weird dream. You know, don't write me a letter saying, gee, what does my dream mean? You know, because, uh, uh, but uh, he does, he did indeed speak this way. And then, and, and Jeremiah had no envy. He said, when I wake and beheld, and my sleep was sweet unto me. Now we're getting into the heavy stuff. This is just a warm up. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. Oh, really? Isn't that interesting? And it shall come to pass that, as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and destroy and to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. In those days they shall say no more. The fathers have eaten the sour grape and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now you realize what that means. If you do, I'll be amazed, because that has to do with an old proverb they had. And you also find this in Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 2 and 3. What it really refers to, it's not obvious from the proverb until you really get into it, is that if the fathers eat a sour grape, therefore the children's teeth are set on edge. Nuh-uh. If the fathers eat it, it, the children are not being punished for the father's sins. Children are being punished for their own sin. They may be sinners because they inherited from the father, 
but they're getting punished for their own sin. And that's not obvious from the proverb here. This is a proverb quoted in Ezekiel also that was prevalent in the day. It connotes the idea of the fact that the children are being punished because the father screwed up. No, they may be heirs to the sin nature in, in terms of inheritance, sure. But they're get, they, they've done enough sin of their own to merit the punishment they're getting, to put it in sort of, uh, you know, loose terms. The fathers have eaten a sour grape and the children's teeth are set on it. Says no, no. Verse thirty. Rebuttal of that says, "But every man shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth the sour grape, his teeth shall set on edge." Now you and I get lost in that rhetoric because it builds upon a proverb extant at that time. But uh, so much for that. That what he's really saying is that uh, everybody will, you know, get their own justice. But now we get into the incredible passage that the Book of Jeremiah is so famous for, and it's clear that we will not have time. The time remaining to adequately deal with this. So what we will do is jump in a little bit, take a preview, and then, and then pick it up next time to develop more properly. Verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. You f do you feel his wounds there? I mean, he can't even make reference to it without pointing that out. He's hurt. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. Thus saith the Lord God, who giveth the sun for, the, uh, for a light by day and the ordinance of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, who divideth the sea when its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If the, these ordinances depart from from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. <laughs> Got it backwards. In other words, he's saying that, in other words, the sun will stop shining the light and the moon will, and the stars will, will uh, no longer shine when Israel is no longer being a nation for me. In other words, that's a rhetorical way of saying it'll never happen. Okay, so don't get lost in the reversal that's implied in the, in the rhetoric. Now, this is the covenant. It is the climax of Jeremiah's teaching. It's the climax of the book of Jeremiah. Some could build an argument it's the climax of the Old Testament, in a sense, in a, in a doctrinal sense. It's the new covenant. But before you think you understand it, let me point out who the parties are. It ain't you and I. Oh, you thought you understood it, huh? It is, but that's because we've got to cross some bridges yet. We'll do that next time. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This covenant is a new covenant with them. The covenant has at least nine things that we'll unravel as we get together next time. The time, the time is coming. The maker of the covenant is none other than the Lord. His, the name of the covenant is a new covenant. And those of you that can read uh, uh, Romans 11, 
Hebrews 8. Those of you that have your homework, since we're not going to get together next time, <laughs> won't let you off, read Hebrews chapter 8 and, let the, and follow wherever the Holy Spirit leads you in that perusal. Hebrews 10 is also useful. And there's lots of others, but I'll spare you all of The parties of, to the covenant are the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And this is also covered in Ezekiel 37, incidentally, and Romans chapter 9, incidentally. The new covenant is contrasted with the old, okay? The old uh, uh, covenant was based on, the Mosaic law was based on merit and, and, and works. It was susceptible to infraction. The Lord says here, not according to the covenant which I made with the fathers of the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. Moses hadn't even come down from the mountain with it, and they were breaking it. He gets down the mountain, they already got the golden calf thing going. They broke the first laws of the ten before he even got down the hill. That's what he's hurt by. The old covenant had no enablement. There was no mechanism to give you the ability to keep it. The old covenant could not give life. Galatians 3.21 highlights that. Okay, this the new covenant deals with your nature. It the, the the laws are written in the heart, and they will yield an intimate, a non-teachable knowledge. You're not going to teach them how to know God. You're going to know God when this happens. There's going to be internal fellowship, and so forth. The covenant we find in in the in, in the seven verses here is immutable. That is, is unchanging. There's an unchanging purpose, and it's linked to the fixed order in nature. Now, the covenant also has some problems. The physical covenant is going to deal with the rebuilt Jerusalem that's going to be rebuilt in holiness and with permanence. Jerusalem. Well, gee, is Jerusalem going to be there forever? Well, I don't know. Revelation 22 looks pretty interesting. The new Jerusalem, whatever that is. And that's the one place where the concept of the church in Israel once again come back together. But that's a special situation that requires very special study. Who is the guarantor of the covenant? The Lord himself. And Hebrews 6 gives us the hint that he swears, he can swear by no other, he swears by himself. That will all be developed here uh, next time. Now, the Passover commemorates the old. The Lord's Supper will commemorate the new. We're going to develop next time by getting into Romans 9, the fact that Israel's rejection of that covenant opens the opportunity for the Gentiles. Okay. However, Israel is yet to ratify that covenant at the climax of her history, and that's what Zechariah 12 and 13 are all about. All Gentiles have the eligibility to be grafted into the stock of Abraham, and that's what Romans 11 is all about. We'll look at that next time. Now, why is a new covenant needed? Hebrews 8 that I assigned for you, and also the third chapter in Ephesians, deals with that. But don't get confused. The Israel is not the same thing as the church. Israel's rejection grants opportunity to the church, but the, the Lord's dealing with the two is distinctively different. And I believe that God will, when, he's, when the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and we'll develop that next time. There is a number, and when that number is reached, the Father says to the Son, go get them. And that closes the church and reestablishes God's dealing with Israel the seventh week of Daniel. And that is going to happen, I believe, in our lifetime, here on the earth, visibly, dramatically. 
Now, why is this covenant made with Israel? Because first of all, it can't be. This is not a covenant with the church. There was no church until after the resurrection. This covenant was made before there was a resurrection. Okay. And we'll deal with that issue from Ephesians 1 and elsewhere. Okay. And uh, those of you who want to get into this fullness of the Gentiles, we can look at... I can sneak one more idea in because we're probably undernourished at this point. Let's turn to Romans 11. I'll, give you, I'll just take that one thing and then we'll let you go. Romans 11. And we'll talk more about this next time, but I want you to be mulling this kind of thing over. And Paul is talking here about grafting in and all kinds of things, but I just focused in the interest of the courtesy of time. Verse 25, Paul says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part is happened to Israel until. That's a very interesting word in the Bible. Whenever you see the word until, that means it's going to change. Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. The fullness of Gentiles, the, the appointed number by the Lord's parable, go out in the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be full for the marriage supper. Remember the parable? And that's what's going on since the rejection of the Mashiach by Israel, of Israel. And uh, so until the fullness of the Gentiles, because there's a number. Someone in this room may, from our discussion, or hearing the tape, may from all of this be awakened by the Holy Spirit to commit themselves to Jesus Christ. Someone in this room may be tonight, on the way home, driving home, something that the Holy Spirit may have brought up through me or somehow. Awaken that person and say, Jesus, I am a sinner, and I can't get there by myself, but only by you. And that person will commit himself and trust the completed work of Jesus Christ, something we cannot, none of us can add to, to, to even presume so as blasphemy. And in so doing, in committing, in that person trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, he becomes designated by the Father as saved. Because the Father now has the opportunity to impute the Lord's righteousness to that person. And he becomes saved, whatever that word means. Huh? Somewhere in the Father's counter, the register is increased by one. So if the, we don't know that the fullness of the Gentiles is short by one Guy, the reason we're all hanging around paying our second trustees <laughs> is because the number ain't full yet. Now, if that person driving home tonight, driving down the freeway or kneeling by his bed that night, or he or she by, that, by the bed that night, makes a commitment to Jesus Christ, and if that counter goes up by one and it's the full number, the father will say to the son, go get him. I'm not sure the son knows the number. Jesus said, no man knoweth the day nor the hour, not the angels in heaven, not the Son, but the Father only. He makes that remark. Now, that was before Revelation and, and a lot of things that the, you know, there's some complicated theology. There. I don't want to get into all that, that bramble bush. But the point is, there is a number. Now, what intrigues me particularly is that Satan knows that there's a number. He doesn't know what the number is, but he knows there's a number. When it's full, it's over. So from day one, when anybody accepted the Lord, he sweated it. As the years go by and that number increases, every time it clicks up by one, he's panicked. 
You ever wonder why Satan is so anxious for you to have a fruitless ministry? He doesn't want you adding to that counter. Because he knows when it does, when it is full, that starts a countdown and he's going to have to be in a hurry. He will he knows he has but little time, the scripture says. So the second coming of Jesus Christ, that is in the sense of the rapture. There's a lot we know about his come returning in power. That's all well laid out in the scenario. But the rapture of the church, the completion of the fullness of the Gentiles, is mysterious in the scripture, not expressly described. But it's there in verse 25 of Romans 11. That number is increasing every day as the Holy Spirit moves at his pace throughout mankind, selecting those that are foreordained by the Father to be part of that number. That counter increases. That counter, you might be the missing number in that counter. So I encourage you, if the Holy Spirit is tugging you in the privacy of your own will, commit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Investigate his claims and trust him for everything, because he's done the whole job. You and I cannot add anything to it. All we can do is stand back and say, praise God. We can work hard and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit get some small appreciation for the magnitude of what he has provided for you and I as a gesture to demonstrate what infinite love is all about. That's really what he's, that's what he's all about. Got a question for you. Having said all of that, what you might ponder is why do we insist upon returning to the Old Covenant, which Jeremiah, the prophet, and the apostles and Lord Jesus Christ himself, warned us was not capable of fulfillment. The rules, the laws, the path by works, the scripture from end to end demonstrates is bankrupt and only show us our need, not fill it. Yet you and I, in a thousand ways, insist upon returning to the law, trying by works to somehow add to what God has completely provided. That's your field problem. Till we meet again, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.